Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 81. Python 310 is here. This week on the show, two former guests and Real Python authors return to talk about the new version. Gerarna Hiela's article was posted to the site Monday, and it's titled Python 310 Cool New Features for You to Try. Christopher Trudeau's video course came out on Tuesday, and it covers the topics from the article with multiple visual examples of Python 310 code. Gerarna and Christopher work together to create code examples of the new features used in both. We talk about more user-friendly error messages, structural pattern matching, enhancement to Python's type system, and much more. Gerarna and Christopher not only cover the new features, but they offer advice about ways you might incorporate them into your code. We also discuss what you should think about before running the new version for your projects. This episode is brought to you by Sneak. Sneak is like Grammarly for your code. Secure your project with vulnerability scanning and automated fixes. Try Sneak for free at sneak.co slash realpython. That's S-N-Y-K dot C-O slash realpython. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Well, I want to welcome back Ger Arna and Christopher Trudeau. I'm excited to wrap up this sort of Python 310 week here where we have Gerarna's article and then Christopher Trudeau's course. We're going to kind of cover lots of these high-level features initially and then kind of dive into some like little grab bag of additional things at the end. Thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. If you're ready to dive in, maybe we could start with talking about the improvements, and this is something David and I have talked multiple times in the progression of Python 3.10 about better error messages in Python 3.10, but if you want to take that one first, Gerana? Yeah, so so one thing I feel like just with, with the news of like the annual uh, schedule for Python, uh, where they kind of do the releases more regularly and so on, we, we I think we kind of get the news as well of new things happening so that uh, when, when you run the news show, we kind of have heard about some of these things. Yeah, it's been neat. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, essentially, uh, better error messages. It's um, an initiative, I believe, by, by Pablo uh, Galindo Salgado, who is the release manager for uh, 3.10 and 3.11, um, in essentially working on some of the error messages in Python that uh, sometimes may come off as not very friendly. You kind of uh, leave out the quotation mark or something and it just tells you something like eof at end of or yeah eof whatever that means and things like this so so now they're kind of going in especially on the syntax errors to to make them more precise and more helpful and actually give you suggestions on what what is happening so for instance if you are leaving out a a quotation mark that would kind of mean that python the parser just runs to the end of the line that would be an eol in the old syntax but now it will kind of actually tell you that there's an unterminated string literal and it'll point to where it started and things like this and um, that they've done a whole bunch of these also if you're kind of messing up 
especially for dictionary syntax or similar things where you might leave out a colon between your items or a comma between items and things like this, it will precisely tell you exactly what you've done. So you can kind of go in, go in and fix it instead of being confused by in, in the old days, it would typically just say something like invalid syntax and then give you a line number that was often just wrong, even. Yeah, it'll be like maybe like the last thing that it recognized, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is kind of weird because that's probably correct, but like everything after it may not be. So it was very confusing. Yeah, and it's I believe it's p- partly due to the to the new parser that was uh, introduced in in the latest in Python three nine. The, the old parser was kind of very naive and kind of could just move forward essentially. So so it, it couldn't really backtrack once it hit something that it didn't understand. So it would kind of often give you the errors on the on the next line when it finally realized something was wrong, especially if you're inside some kind of parentheses or brackets or something like this. Yeah, so not only you were talking the the parentheses or the um, quotation marks, but also like you know opening and closing of the brackets and pointing to where they started. Exactly. I, I'm really excited about this. Were there other uh, examples that that you noticed, Chris? Yeah, the the, the feature there that I kind of uh, actually had some fun with while I was writing up the course was the uh, suggestions feature. Uh, this is uh, something that I've seen in a couple terminal shells now where you, you type, a, you make a typo and it says, oh, did you mean this instead? Yeah. And they've added that support to the error messages as well. So if you, you know, if you import the collections library and then try to grab a named tuple out of it and you spell named tuple wrong, it'll say, did you mean named tuple? And uh, when I was writing up some of the sample code for the course, it, it actually helped me once. I was—I I don't remember what error I did, but it was—I typed something wrong, and it was like, "Oh, you meant this." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I did. Thank you. That was helpful." Um, <laughs> so it's—it's uh, it's a little bit like uh, um, what do you call it in the editors where they—the uh, auto autocomplete. Autocomplete. Yes. Thank you. It's—it's it's a little bit like autocomplete, but inside of the REPL. So that—that uh, that was kind of a neat little feature. The other aspect of it, I find uh, lately, I've been uh, on and off helping one of my younger nephews learn uh, some of the coding, and a lot of the syntax errors. Just you know, thirteen-year-old kid doesn't get it, right? Like a syntax error, invalid something doesn't is not particularly helpful. And now you see things like, I think you forgot brackets, or you know, I, this should have been uh, double equals instead of a single equals. Much, much more readable, uh, much more friendly for uh, for new coders. Yeah, the the term "better" is is sort of an interesting blanket <laughs> statement for error messages, in the sense that you know it's like friendlier <laughs> or more specific or uh, lots of these things that are kind of under that that umbrella of better. But yeah, it's it's nice to see these changes. Yeah, I think this this will both make it much easier for beginners, but also for us more experienced coders that it it, it will cut down on my de- debugging time essentially, just pointing me directly to what whatever I messed up. So. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, cool. So the other one that has come up on the podcast multiple times up to now is the structural pattern matching. Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So if you've come from other programming languages that have a switch statement, this is that on steroids. If you're not familiar with it, uh, essentially it's a alternative to large if-then-else blocks. There are two new keywords introduced, one called match, the other called case. And you declare one of these pattern blocks by saying match and then giving it a thing to match. And this is usually a variable. And then inside of that match block, you have one or more case statements that are 
patterns. And if the pattern fires, then the block underneath that case statement is what gets executed. Uh, so in the course, uh, one of the simple examples that I use is I match on name and in, and has a case with the string Guido. And if the person's name is Guido, then it prints I'm not worthy. <laughs> and if the uh, case is the default case, which is everybody else, which you do with an underscore, then it just says hello to you. Uh, so this is a really simple case. And, and honestly, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's not much of an improvement on if else. It's about the same amount of code and looks about as complicated. But that's sort of the basis of it. Uh, where this tool gets really, really powerful is the patterns that you can match in those case statements can get really, really crazy. Uh, so you can match the, you know, the the integer inside of a dictionary, inside of a list of dictionaries, inside of a class, and it does that without any problems. You can match specially with data classes. And because data classes know the order of their own child parameters, their arguments, it will actually populate those for you. So you can say, if you've got a card object that has a rank and a suit, you can actually say match card objects that have suit equal to hearts. So that kind of thing in if else would probably take three or four lines of code. Here, it's a single line and relatively readable. This is uh, a bit of a contentious feature. I think it's anytime you add something like a switch statement from other languages, people get a little uncomfortable. My primary complaint with switch statements in other languages is they're giant foot guns. Uh, one of the biggest issues that you have is if you forget to put a break inside of a block, you might accidentally run multiple cases. So I am pleased to see that Python did not do that. So when you're doing a case statement, if it matches one, it will not run the rest. So that's far more foolproof than uh, some other languages where I've used this. So it's uh, it's an interesting feature. I suspect that it'll be a little bit like the walrus operator that, you know, five or six years from now, there's going to be specific cases where it gets used. But otherwise, you know, once the arguments calm down, uh, you know, people will just move on. One of the things I thought was interesting, and I'm guessing this is related to the peg parser improvement, the expression grammar kind of stuff, is that it doesn't, as long as you're using the correct formatting of the syntax it doesn't forego you using the word case or the word match those are not keywords is that right am i getting the right terminology ah, i didn't realize that i haven't i had not attempted that so i i just assumed that they were in there in the syntax parser so uh, if they've done that that's interesting and that they actually they've actually introduced a new class of keywords so to speak that they call soft keywords and matching case are soft keywords that are kind of just keywords in certain contexts all right so you can still use matching case as variable names for instance i think that was some of the worries right that that you could have mm. already you know parts of your code that use the word match and now like python 310 would have broken things or potentially you know gotten confused because they're suddenly brand new keywords all right yeah and i think especially match has been used to in regular expressions and things like this forever. So you, you can't really use that as, a, that as a keyword. I think that would break everything. Yeah. And so the, <laughs> I, I like your term of foot gun of like, you know, potentially shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> um, I know you were talking about that quite a bit with uh, the JavaScript course that you did. Oh yeah, JavaScript. J JavaScript's an entire howitzer. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fun. It's amazing anybody has any toes left. Right. <laughs> I really liked the, there's three peps that are 
sort of included to kind of discuss this a little further beyond the the article and the course that that are there. So I'll include links to them. And I, I did like the the PEP 636, which included a uh, tutorial, actually, that'll be part of the Python documentation that you can kind of go through and look at it. And they had kind of a fun example where it was uh, kind of doing a bit of a text adventure kind of thing. And so it had uh, lots of different kind of matching and, and sort of ways that this would be unique and a little different than how other languages uh, propose it. And then, you know, showing off those features that you were talking about where it can be a little more of a, you know, detailed structure, uh, you know, of uh, things inside of things that it's actually matching, which is cool. Yeah, one one of the examples I don't remember which pep it was, but they were uh, they were sort of showing um, like a typical a GUI interface where you're getting an event object, and that event might be from the mouse, it might be from the keyboard, it might be from the network, and because you would have each one of those events be a different class, you can just end up with a case based on that. And, and of course, you could do this before, but it would have been a giant if is instance this, if instance that, uh, and it, it does for the these larger cases become more readable. I wonder if this will affect the world of testing in, in a large way. It's possible. Uh, the, the, there was an article that I was reading this morning. They had gone through and done an analysis of some of the more popular libraries and were trying to figure out what percentage of those libraries were big if-then-else conditions where this might be applied. And I'm sure they were doing it in an automated fashion because they were doing things like Django, which is too big to be reading casually over the weekend. Right. <laughs> and the article claimed that less than 1% of Django is this kind of conditional block. I, I think there are cases where it's useful, but I don't think it's going to be, you know, a revolutionary change to the uh, to the language. I think it's, uh, you know, when when three ten is getting to the place where it's end of life, and this feature has been in the language long enough that everybody who is using it has support for it, uh, you'll see it in appropriate places, and, and in the meantime, it'll pop up in sort of specific conditions. Did you know that 47% of Python projects include known vulnerabilities? And there are vulnerabilities in even the most popular packages, like urllib3, pyyaml, and Django. Luckily, 87% of Python vulnerabilities can be fixed, and Sneak makes it easy and free. Find out if your Python projects are affected by vulnerabilities, and get automated fix advice in your IDEs and repositories with Sneak. Create your free Sneak account at sneak.co slash realpython. That's S-N-Y-K dot C-O slash realpython. Moving onward to type hints, and this has been a topic that Garana and myself have gone back and forth uh, <laughs> with because I, I did a course based on his his uh, excellent article, like kind of getting people started and type hinting and um, type checking. So what are some of the improvements that they've added this time, Garana? Uh, yeah, so... This has been a regular thing now, I guess, for many releases that there are small uh, improvements coming all the time. I guess the one that will be probably the most used and uh, kind of most straightforward is that they're just uh, simplifying how to specify union types. So if you have something that could be either one type or another, so say, for instance, you're working with a number that could be either float or int, um, then in the old days you need, or old days, uh, as of now, right now, I guess, uh, you would need to import typing and then use typing.union to, to sort of like specify that this could be a float or an int. Now there's 
allowing you to just use the pipe uh, symbol directly and say float pipe int uh, directly. So no no imports and nothing, and it will just be directly understood by the uh, by the type checker. Interestingly, the this syntax will also work in uh, uh, runtime checks, like if you're doing an is instance uh, and you can check for several types, which has been possible before using a tuple of types, but now you can also use the new union syntax for this. Nice. So that that will definitely just cl- cl- clean up uh, your type ints and uh, and so on. But yeah, unfortunately, it 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 will be three ten since it's a syntax change. Okay. Then there's a couple of other peps that are sort of like, uh, say, more niche uh, uses of type ints. But one is that uh, you can explicitly uh, annotate something as a type alias. Uh, so, so that's something that's been supported for a long time is having type aliases where you just essentially say that, uh, for instance, in our n- number example, I could just define a new variable, really. That's number equal typing dot union of um, float and int. And then later in my type ins, I could use number, just a variable name. Now, since these are just look exactly like regular variables in Python, it's been hard for the type checker to kind of really take advantage of these and always kind of you know, make sure that what you're doing is, is really adding type ins and not just not just some some variable that you're going to use. So, so they're just introducing a way for you to annotate these things as a type alias so that you can get even more help from the type checker. And then they're also in introducing something they call type cards. And this is also kind of related to the union types. So for instance, say that you have um, something that could be either none or, or a string, say, or some kind of type. And um, then to kind of help or to kind of make sure that you cover all the all the possibilities of your types, you typically will have a check that says, if this variable is none, then do this. If it's not none, then do that. And the type checker can kind of recognize these things. So if you, for instance, do a none check and then introduce, or you make sure it's a string, if it comes in as none, then the type checker will sort of like understand that, okay, now it's a string, so I can treat it as a string and you can use your string methods and so on. This kind of works for your basic if variable is none or if it's an instance of something. Uh, but if you have more complicated things, uh, the type checker will not be able to do this. For instance, if you have a list of strings or something like that, it's hard to make sure that it, it kind of works out. So what uh, you will be allowed to in 647 is, no, sorry, in, in Python 3.10, it's based on PEP 647, uh, is to define your own type cards. And again, you'll just annotate this as this is a type card. And then you, you will be allowed to to use those functions. And the type checker will then understand that, okay, now now the type is is narrowed down to whatever you, your type card is guarding, essentially. Oh, cool. So but both of these are kind of uh, really nice if you need them, but most people will probably not use them, essentially. <laughs> yeah. It's like these kind of special cases where this stuff kind of comes up. Right. Yeah, okay. And yeah, the, the final pep that also about type int uh, in 3.10 is uh, something called parameter specification variables, which, um, yeah, is some words uh, combined, I guess. Uh, <laughs> this, yeah. this is kind of, it, it's related to type variables, which is something that's been... Uh, in the type system for, for a long time, I guess, since the beginning, where where you essentially have a type that's not defined in your code, but it kind of just gets a value when it's 
being used, so essentially like a regular variable, but for types. Um, and the way it's used is that you can say that, uh, yeah, I have some function that can take in any kind of type, and then it will return the same type, for instance. So instead of then having to say that this could be, for instance, well, if you would say, call the input variable any and then the output any, then, then there's no real type checking. But if you yeah, okay. instead define, I, I say that this is a type variable, I'll just call it t is usually used. And then you say that, uh, yeah, the input parameter should be t and then it returns the type t. Uh, so that kind of actually does then type check that it inputs and returns the same type. Interesting. So that that's narrowing cases where it, you know, it's trying to check to make sure that it's not going to, you know, transmute something, right, from yeah, an integer it, to a float or or a, a string to an integer or something like that. Exactly. So so this is kind of covering most of the needs that we have, but there are cases, for instance, and I guess the most big one is is for if you have decorators or other ways of defining dynamically defining functions. Uh, then for, for a decorator typically takes in a function with any number of arguments that can be any kind of type, essentially, and then it does its decorating and then it, it returns essentially a, usually a function with the same signature. But with the current tools that we have in the type system, it, it, we can't really type in uh, decorators properly. So, so you lose type information if you apply a decorator to, to something. So what these parameter specification variables are is they're essentially just allowing you to do the same thing as with type variables, uh, but for many parameters at once. So it kind of gives you an option to say that this thing can take in any number of arguments and it it, it should return the same number of arguments with the same types, essentially, those kind of things. It's funny that the the other one was kind of more geared as guardrails. I feel like this one (laughs) is definitely a, a similar kind of concept. Yeah, I think it's kind of just uh, ironing out some of the rough age, edges that people have kind of discovered are, are there. So we're kind of down to fairly niche changes in the in, in the typing system by now. And you feel like it would probably become a little less frequent these uh, additional updates? Then I think it feels like most of the the big things are covered by now. So I don't know if it will be less frequent or just smaller and smaller improvements possibly. Okay. Because I guess now there, there are four different peps just on the type system, which I think is more than any of the other releases, but they're kind of smaller in a sense than okay. maybe some, some of the previous years. So Garan, seeing as uh, the, uh, there's a, the, the annotations and the introspection stuff is sort of in the same area, do you want to maybe touch on those while we're talking about typings? Uh, right. So I guess, yeah, that, that's one of the things that have been, uh, I guess you also covered this in an, one of the earlier episodes, the whole discussion on uh, an, annotations uh, and f- future annotations, essentially, Yeah, uh, that were uh, originally introduced in Python 3.7. Uh, there was this future import, which is kind of one, one of the ways that we can kind of introduce uh, things that are not necessarily backwards compatible in a, in a in a slow way, so to speak. And this was that the type annotations, or really annotations, they they don't really need to be about type, but they usually are, would kind of be not evaluated while the code is being read, but kind of postpone evaluation of these annotations. And this um, this is helpful when you have things that kind of end up being self-referential, or sometimes you want even annotations that may not 
directly make sense to Python, but it's something that uh, the type checker should be looking out for and things like this. So, so this was introduced in Python 3.7, but kind of with this future import, meaning that it only works if you add from future import annotations at the top of your file. And back in 3.7, it was kind of jokingly said that this would become a main feature of Python without the future import in Python 4. And uh, of course, by now, I guess, uh, people mostly agree that there will not be a Python 4 in a long time. So instead, uh, at the last year's Python language summit, they decide, okay, let's make these future annotations part of Python for 3.10. And then as the feature was kind of moving forward, there was more and more uh, testing done. And uh, some of the uh, big libraries that use annotations for runtime, so not the type checking, but at, at runtime, like FastAPI and Pydantic, discovered that in introducing this postponed evaluation had some big, big issues, essentially. And I think it's mainly due to that you don't, when you do the postponed evaluation, you don't actually have the correct context that everything was defined. And it's, it's hard to, to recreate that for, for all cases. So kind of at the last minute before the feature freeze of 3.10, it was decided that, okay, we, we need to go back and look into this uh, a little bit more. And then I think it's still on the books for 3.11 to include these future annotations as sort of like base Python, but it, it will not be in the current version though. There was a few things that were kind of added. One was a, a new uh, function in the inspect module called get annotations. And this one is supposed to be, be able to read these annotations, both the future annotations and and the, and the current w way things are working. Okay. Sort of like consistently. So, so if you need to use annotations at runtime, you should kind of use the inspect get annotations function to do it. Yeah, that was like quite the little drama that went back and forth for a little while. I got a little heated. I was joking that it was like all these people on the sidelines of Twitter, like telling the, all the sides to like fight, fight, fight. <laughs> and it was kind of strange. And so like, mm -hmm. you know, luckily cooler heads prevailed and everybody could kind of figure out, you know, like, you know, everybody's intent is, is good here. We just need to figure out how to, you know, move forward with it. And, you know, mm. Yeah, those kinds of libraries like Pydantic and and Fast API, the the typing is such a kind of I don't want to say crucial, but like you know integral part of like what makes them special and and mm -hmm. fast and and able to kind of develop quickly because you know knowing what you're getting and you know sending and coming back is is uh, pretty crucial with you know talking to all these different elements, especially you know web and databases and things like that. Mm -hmm. So. Next one I thought we could cover is talking about the some a little bit smaller ones. Um, there's some changes to how zip can be kind of defined now, right, Chris? Yeah, they, they've uh, so if, if you've not used zip before, this is a built-in function that will take different lists of things or anything that's iterable and combine them together. So if you give it two strings because strings are iterable on letters, it'll give you a series of tuples that are the first two letters of the two strings and then the second two and the third two, etc. So this is handy if you're trying to manipulate data. So if, if you've got a series of lists that are the columns in a database, that, and you want to turn that into rows, then zip will combine these things for you. 
The problem with it is it's not particularly safe. If you have one of the lists not having the same length as one of the other lists, it just happily goes along and computes and hands you stuff back, and it may interleave it incorrectly or it may leave data out. Yeah. So there was a f- sort of fix to this a while back where they created a different function inside of iter tools called zip longest but they sort of still left the problem inside of the zip function. So what they've done in this release is they've added a uh, optional argument called strict. And if you set that to true, it'll raise an exception if your sequences are of a different length. So it's a little safety feature, but it's not really on by default. So you kind of have to know that it's there and remember to use it. But it will prevent uh, some pretty ugly and hard to find bugs if you're uh, if you remember to take advantage of it. Yeah, cool. All right. So one of the things that has been interesting with the so the math and statistics modules has been there've been lots of these little additions over the last couple of releases, and this time they've added a handful of uh, additional ones to the statistics uh, methods. So, Garen, you want to dive into those? Uh, yeah, so I guess the statistics module, uh, I think that was included more or less at the same time I came to Python. So so I didn't realize that it's not kind of been here all that long. But I think since Python 3.4, uh, there's been a statistics module that can kind of do the very basic things like find the mean, find a median and, and those kind of things. And they've kind of been, uh, they've been quite explicit about the statistics module, not being sort of like a competitor to some of the bigger modules like NumPy or Pandas or stats models or things like this. But it should kind of more just be your basic stuff, essentially what you could find on a graphical calculator, uh, they, they've said. Okay. So, so they, they have kind of consciously left out a lot of things. But what they decided to include this time was essentially a few functions that can be used if you have two, two data sets that you kind of want to in a sense, compare or just find a relationship between. Uh, so you can find the uh, correlations or covariance, which is essentially the same kind of thing. Or you can regress one variable against the other, so do a linear regression between two variables. Uh, so, so these are just added to the statistics module, and I think it's the first and then the only only functions that can kind of deal with two data sets, essentially. The, the f- the mean and those kind of things typically take in one list of numbers and find the mean or find the median and so on. So for, for these things, essentially co- correlation just gives you a number that kind of tells you how, how does these two sets vary together. So if, if they kind of are essential, well, if you would find a correlation between the exact same things, uh, they will have a cor- perfect correlation or be or a one in correlation. And if it's just one is completely random compared to the other, you would have something very close to zero. Okay. So so it gives you a good indication of these things might be related. And then, of course, there's the whole correlation and causation are two very different things. So it doesn't mean that one causes the other and so on, but um, at least you can find out if there is some kind of relationship between them. And, and but... It won't, the numbers won't tell you why that is. Do you think this would be useful in, like, say, smaller data science or statistic type projects um, Um, where you wouldn't actually want to grab another library? Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of where where it fits, right? Because if if you're doing some kind of heavy statistical modeling, you're already using some of the bigger libraries. So it's more something that's easy to grab if if you're just having a few numbers needing to do some simple calculations. And uh, I think 
yeah, just having something like a linear regression uh, function directly available in standard library um, definitely useful for a few for for this kind of simple explorations. So it would be n- nice to have it there, I guess. For this week's spotlight, I want to remind you that Christopher Trudeau has created a video course all about this week's topic of cool new features of Python 3.10. In the video course, you'll learn about debugging with more helpful and precise error messages, using structural pattern matching to move beyond nested if, lf, and else statements, and match deep into data structures, adding more readable and more specific type hints, checking the length of sequences when using zip, calculating multivariable statistics, and working with asynchronous iteration, plus much more. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how you can implement the new features of Python 3.10. Like most of the video courses on Real Python, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and you get code samples for each of the examples shown. All our video courses include a transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. And that brings us to a couple other small ones. There's the asynchronous iteration. Chris, do you want to talk about that one? Sure. So I think it was in Python 3.7, they introduced the concept of coroutines and That is another way of doing parallel code. So this is a way of doing multiple things at a time on your system. There's two different kinds of parallel coding. One is CPU parallelism, multiprocessor parallelism, and the other is I.O. bound. So multiprocessor takes advantage if your computer has more than one processor and it'll run different pieces of code on those two processors. I.O. bound will actually work on a single processor uh, because a lot of things, so your, your, your computer runs a lot faster than your disk, which runs a lot faster than your network. So most programs are actually sitting there waiting, doing nothing for a very long time from the computer's perspective. So I.O. bound parallelism is the idea of, oh, you're waiting on doing something with the file system? Okay, let's do something else instead. So a coroutine is just another way of tackling this problem. So the coroutines include two keywords. One is async and the other is await. And you can make a function be asynchronous by declaring it async. And you have to use a library and and map them up together properly for it to work. But the essential idea is you can run multiple of these things at a time. Now, the challenge is as soon as you have an asynchronous function, If it calls synchronous code, it's not asynchronous anymore because it has to stop and wait and you're losing the advantage of being asynchronous. Mm. And two of the most common things that you're going to do is iterate over data. So if you're using the iter and next functions to iterate over some data, well, those are synchronous. So if you're using them inside of an asynchronous routine, this is a problem. You've now dropped out of asynchronous land and you're no longer taking advantage of the parallelism. So what Python 3.10 has introduced is two new functions. One is a iter and the other is a next. And these are asynchronous versions of the iter and next functions. So if you're coding inside of coroutines and inside of the asynchronous world, then you can now use these instead. And that will stop you from dropping into synchronous mode and in theory should speed up your code if you've got a lot of IO waiting inside of it. So part of that was it was sort of protective of the iteration before in a sense that it wouldn't 
want to switch in and out of those situations? Uh, no, the, the code doesn't actually stop you. It, it just, so if you, if you use, if you, without thinking about it, call synchronous code from asynchronous code, you're just, yeah. it'll just wait, right? So it, okay. it, you, you won't give up the thread, you're stuck. Okay. And so essentially, these are two new functions that say, you don't have to wait on me, I'll, I'll come back. So, so if it's going to take me a while to get the next thing out of this iteration, then the thread can switch over to the other thing. It essentially is a freeing kind of concept. Whereas previously, if you'd included this inside of an asynchronous block, uh, you would be stuck waiting on it. Okay. So this is... For people who do a lot of parallel coding, this is a beautiful thing. I did a whole bunch of work in university in this space, and the only thing I really, really remember about it is try not to do it. it it's <laughs> it, it's harder. It's harder to debug. It's harder to con- uh, control. So if you if you truly are doing something where you really need the speed up, this is a very very powerful tool. But it's not something I suggest people uh, uh, do prematurely. You you want to be really sure that you've got a lousy synchronous code that has the ability to go asynchronous before you put in all the effort to go that way. But if you are there, you know, if you're using tools like Daphne, Django Channels, any of those kinds of things where you're, you're, you're doing asynchronous hits off of a web server so that you're serving multiple pages at a time, you know, there's value here. It's just, it's a, a little bit niche. Yeah, we were, I recorded a show with Will McGugan uh, to talk about his, his, uh, text framework it's called a textual they sometimes call it a tui yep and asynchronous has been kind of one of the things he's had to figure out in in that and we kind of related it to like the idea like in some ways he's he has a background in in games (laughs) yes and and the idea of like kind of making this sort of game loop kind of idea and i feel like you know like it's sort of similar in that way that you know there's all these things that are going to be happening and then you have to overall like you know pay attention <laughs> and what what's holding things up and you know making things lag here or there so it does become quite the yeah the, and, the, the issues <laughs> and it becomes you know even simple things so the print statement for example is not thread safe so if you are littering your code with print statements in order to debug and you're doing parallelism, you might just get corrupted output and that's not going to help you. If you're using a debugger, you're going to stop one of the threads and not the rest of them, which will change the behavior because they're not all running at the same time. So you end up in race condition land and bugs are are far trickier to try and uh, tackle. And in fact, so although the language for the last three or four versions have been putting in a whole bunch of features along this space, you still have to use third-party libraries to take real advantage of it, right? So the, the keywords are there, but if you want to manipulate files, you have to use AIO files. Uh, if you want to do web requests, uh, you have to use, I, I try to remember the name of it, it's AIHTP. AIHTTP, I think. Uh, so there's there are third-party asynchronous libraries for doing this kind of I/O-bound work. But so although the primary components are built into the language, the utilities are still very much outside in the third-party library space. Yeah, one area that the next one we wanted to kind of cover was uh, text encoding. Um, what are the changes there? I think this this seems to be one of the uh, sort of like running threads in the Python three tennis kind of giving you better options for debugging and okay. uh, finding errors. And so this is uh, similar to that one in that it's, um, uh, it, it will 
give you a way to find problems uh, in your code, essentially. And uh, by default, uh, a lot of Python, especially, uh, yeah, with, with Python 3, um, most of the text encoding is UTF-8, the Unicode. And um, if you open a text file, you will typically do something like with open the file name and then just specify that you want to open it. Uh, there is a optional argument that you can give there, which is encoding. And it turns out that if you don't give this encoding, what happens is that uh, Python will use the preferred encoding of the of the computer or the, or the user, whatever they have set up. And typically on Linux and Mac, this will be UTF-8, uh, but on Windows, it's often something else. Uh, so, so this will then give you these hard and subtle bugs. If you share your code with some coworkers, they're running on Windows. Suddenly, the code that runs nicely on your computer doesn't run on their computer and things like this. So ideally, you, you would always just specify the encoding and then the, the problem would not be there. You just say this text file is a UTF-8 file, so just read it. So what they have added here is essentially just a warning that you can activate either by setting a environment variable on your computer or every time you run a Python script, you can add in uh, with the command line option. And then it will just give you an encoding warning saying that the encoding argument is not specified mm. at every point that you're trying to open a file without an encoding set. And this can then help you just uh, clean up your code, essentially. And uh, this com comes a little bit related to back in Python 3.7, they, they introduced something called the UTF-8 mode, which is also something that you can set either with an environment variable or when you're running the Python interpreter. And in UTF-8 mode, it will just override this preferred encoding of the computer and always use UTF-8. So, so that's sort of like a, another way to kind of handle the problem. But in, in general, it just uh, yeah helps you write better and more safe code, I guess. Cool. So then I think I have like two other ones. One was the, uh, the way that they've kind of updated context managers to, to basically allow them to be contained within parentheses <laughs> i wasn't going to pronounce parenthesized <laughs> so yeah what's going on there yeah the, the, this uh, yeah the, this is kind of just been a sort of like a weird little almost like a wart on the python language and that um, again because of the old uh, uh, parser it wasn't able to add parentheses uh, when, when you're uh, starting with the with, with statement so you couldn't do with parentheses and then whatever your context manager is, and then end parentheses, essentially because the parentheses would interfere with, with the context manager. Hmm. I guess relative few cases where you either had a very complicated context manager or you had a list of context managers where you really wanted to kind of break your lines, you, you couldn't use parentheses like you can in with most of the statements to, to break your lines. You would need to use the backslash to break it off. Uh, so, so this is kind of one of the few places where... Uh, you typically, or you, you might end up using those. So what they were able to do just when they introduced the peg parser in Python 3.9, that's the way I read it. It was sort of like a extremely low-hanging fruit to just make parentheses work. So, so this is actually something that has been working now in Python 3.9 as well, as long as you're using the peg parser. But because the peg parser was sort of like you, you could turn it off in Python 3.9, they, they call this a Python 3.10. Uh, feature that they kind of updated the syntax and you're now uh, free to add parentheses into your with statements. 
Yeah. So the one other one that I have noted here, I don't know if you want to take this one, Christopher, is the the open SSL change. Sure. So the Python compiler uses a uh, open source toolkit called OpenSSL for a bunch of its underlying cryptographic functions. So if you're using Hashlib, for example, or the SSL modules, those are using OpenSSL library. The As with everything, the OpenSSL library has changed over time. And uh, as it's changed, uh, security has improved. And as a result, Python has decided to support a higher version uh, for its minimum. So now by default, you're after OpenSSL 1.1.1. So depending on how you get your Python, this might not matter at all. Because you know if you're using a standard installer, say on Mac or Windows, then you're just going to get the new library built in and it's not a big deal. If you happen to be using certain versions of Linux where they don't install it, they use the system one, uh, you might have to upgrade the system one in order to be able to use 3.10. So if you're on, uh, I think it's Ubuntu 18 or either the Red Hat or CentOS 7s, they use an older version of OpenSSL by default. So if you want to use Python 3.10, you're going to have to up upgrade your OpenSSL as well to get it to work properly. This is just, uh, you know, as things improve and become more secure, you want to be using the more secure library. So Python set a new minimum and uh, this won't impact most folks or the folks that it will impact tend to be the ones who are playing around at the level where they'd be able to know how to fix it anyways. But it's kind of a little side note to know that uh, this has changed. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to see the progression there. So that brings us to the section of the big question, should you upgrade now? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you, either of you want to start off to give me your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, uh, I tend to like playing a little bit with the new features, but it's, I think... The, the yeah, but Python is so mature now that you can usually fairly safely upgrade your interpreter to to use the new version, and um, it shouldn't cause a lot of problems. One thing that I know has kind of been a small issue just when the new versions are coming out is that some of the other libraries that you might depend on, your third party libraries, may not have uh, released wheels for for the new version yet, mm. and and the effect of that is just that. It will try to install those libraries from source instead, so it will essentially install slower. Or worst case, it might require you to have some compilers on your computer and things like this. So so there might be in the beginning a few of the third-party packages that you rely on that will be harder to install. But apart from that, uh, jumping over to using the new interpreter is usually not a problem at all. And often th there will be some improvements like for here, you'll, you'll kind of get um, the benefit of the better error message. For instance, there, there are some optimizations that are done for Python 3.10 that will run slightly faster and so on. But I guess the more interesting question to some extent is, uh, should you start using the new features? So can, can you start playing with actually using the structural pattern matching or even the strict keyword in, in SIP? And, and that, of course, depends on on essentially how much control do you have on your environment? Can you make sure that uh, the code that you're running will always be able to run on Python 3.10 or do you still need to support other older interpreters? So, so typically, uh, espe well, especially if, you, if you're writing libraries that other people might depend on, then I guess it's good to still support the older, older versions. 
but if it's more like you're writing an app that will kind of just uh, run on this Python, then it's easier to, to start using those features already. And of course, th this really depends on if, if you're writing in a, in say, say corporate setting together with others, then that the team need to figure out what, what they're comfortable with. Yeah. <laughs> so, totally. But, but uh, I think it's, it's always great to, to at least a little bit on the side, try, try, try out the new features and, and just kind of know about them, uh, get, get them a little bit in, in, under your fingers. Some of the ways that you've done that in the past was you, you had a, an article and I'll link to it also here of like, if you want to dabble with these other versions that Docker might be a, a good uh, choice there potentially. Yeah, that, that's what I often use myself. I, I, so so when, when I've been researching this Python 3.10 article, uh, I've just been running Python inside of a Docker. Yeah, it makes it very, uh, say, unobtrusive. I'm, I'm not messing with my system Python that I need to depend on another for, for some of my other things or not even messing with my virtual environments. So, so that's a, a fairly straightforward way. At least once you have Docker set up, that could be a, a small hurdle. But once Docker is set up, uh, running a Python within the Docker is quite straightforward. Yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, I, this is without any kind of major evidence, but I feel like these this yearly release cycle, uh, along with the changes to the peg parser last time in 3.9 that the change to 3.10 actually might not be as you know big of a step um i don't know if i'm right in that sense but i, I feel like in my own code and looking at different things that it, it seems like you know it, it should be a fairly smooth upgrade path yeah i, I don't expect any problems but you know uh, if you're going to start putting a new interpreter into production in any language, you should run all those unit tests that, you know, you've been a good little boy or girl and have been writing and maintaining all this time. <laughs> all uh, right. Because, you know, you, you, you don't want to be the one who discovers the weird corner case. But yeah, that, that's what testing's for. But, you know, there, there's enough here that I think that, that there's there's value in going for it. But to Giron's uh, point as well, right? It, a lot of it depends on your situation, right? So I'm, I'm still working on libraries that uh, still support two seven, even though it's end of life, right? So I, I can't even use f string in some cases, uh, as much as I'd love to, right? So you're, that's always a balancing act, unfortunately. So a couple things that we mentioned last year when we had the same kind of similar conversation, uh, we were warning about this version coming up of it being 3.10 and how if you're doing some kind of interesting checking of naming or checking of versions that this might be something to be careful of and how you design your tests. So I don't know if, Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about that? So the standard way of sort of checking what version you're running from within inside of your code is to either use uh, sys.version or sys.version info. The sys.version returns a string and sys.version info uh, returns a tuple. And why this is important is uh, string comparison is based on the ASCII table rather than on numbers. So 3.6 is actually greater than 3.10 because it sees the 1 in 3.10 and sees that as being less than the 6 in 3.6. So if you're using sys.version and a string comparison, you will get the wrong answer if you think you're using the minimum version. So the right way to do this is to use version info instead. 
it returns a tuple and that tuple has the major and the minor version in it and you can compare tuples so three comma six is less than three comma ten the way it should be so you just have to be a little careful about this the good news is several of the linters out there including flake eight will look for this problem so if you uh, are in the habit of using a linter which is a good idea anyways uh, it, it will uh, it'll catch this for you nice are there other things that you need to keep in mind in this upgrade path i don't know if garana do you have any other things that you included in that section i think it, it shouldn't really be a lot of uh, stuff that there's always uh, some of these changes more down at the c level of the language so, so if you're kind of writing c extensions uh, you, sh- you should definitely have a look at that there's a document called uh, porting your code to python 310 that kind of lists all of these things but if you're more yeah uh, writing pure python code then i think there's not really that much to worry about there's a few uh, things that are deprecated and removed but those have kind of been really on the out of the language for a long time so shouldn't cause any issues but uh, as chris said it's always good to make sure you have tests (laughs) yeah definitely the only other thing I would consider, too, is where are you upgrading from? So mm-hmm. um, although 3.9 introduced the peg parser and uh, 3.10, it only has the, the peg parser. So if you were skipping from 3.8 to 3.10, you are actually changing parsers. Now, as far as I know, it went fairly smoothly and there, there weren't many problems with it. But there is a, a deeper structural piece there. So if, uh, if you're safely on 3.9, I don't think you'll have any problems. But if you're coming from something a little earlier again wouldn't hurt to test just in case yeah okay all right well i want to thank you again for coming on and helping me celebrate this uh week of of releases uh for starting with the the python 310 release itself coming out and then garana's article covering the the features and then christopher's course and of course this episode here which is kind of wrapping up the whole week so thanks again for coming on the show i I really appreciate it i look forward to chatting about 311 (laughs) yeah thanks for having me looking forward to next year okay thanks and don't forget you can automatically find and fix vulnerabilities in your python projects for free with sneak create your free sneak account at sneak.co slash real python that's s-n-y-k dot co slash real python i want to thank christopher and garana for coming on the show again and i want to thank you for listening to the real python podcast Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.